Hello, I'm Paul Mathias, National Director at Hayes Education. As the UK's leading education recruiter, we're absolutely committed to sharing meaningful insight and information with the education community. And we're delighted to be working in partnership with Sir Tim Brickhouse and David Cameron, the real David Cameron, on this series of podcasts based around the Hayes booklet on 10 challenges to becoming a truly creative school. These podcasts are a a great opportunity to learn from Tim and David's experience and ideas. We hope you enjoy this series of podcasts on Creative Curriculum. Okay, thank you anyone that's listening. It's good to be back. This is the fifth in the series of podcasts around Creative Curriculum. I think the last time that we spoke, Tim, we finished up talking about student involvement. And although I think we covered a lot of that. I'm aware that you've been doing some work with Essex Heads, amongst others, on the whole idea of student voice and student involvement. And I wondered if we might start off just recapping a bit on some of the things that came out of that. Yeah, well, my interest in it has sort of been dormant for many years. I've kind of known that it's important. I was at the forefront of being interested in student councils and things like that. And increasingly over recent years, I've thought, well, hold on a minute, this is this is much more important than I or many others have regarded it. I've never forgotten going to a group of heads, uh, not in Essex, but in the Northeast, where we talked about it originally. And uh, th- when I said who's in charge of who's got the responsibility lead for student involvement, Afterwards, some of the heads came up and said, you know, you're absolutely right. It was flourishing. And I mentioned how all the things we'd done. And then I realised that last year, somebody or other, Mrs. So-and-so had left. And because it was a burning issue of hers, the burning support for student involvement had gone with her. So that, in other words, it's not one of those things that people, even in the management of a school, think is important. Um, Or at least important enough to give somebody a major responsibility for it and keep checking against what what might happen. And I I was always, when I was in Birmingham, um, whenever a school went wrong, I never forgot the inspectors, I think I mentioned this last time, who you would say, well, the problem really is, you know, the kids aren't working at all, but the staff are working incredibly hard. And therefore, what we really want to do, if we want to turn a school round, is, is, is get the students really involved, working and engaged in whatever they possibly can do. And as you know, when we met the Essex heads, I'd kind of primed five of their colleagues as a result of our work with the deputies who had kind of casually mentioned some of the things they were doing. And those five heads gave, I thought, some remarkable um, propositions of how you could become involved. I don't know whether you thought that as, as they illustrated the way which was much beyond the school's council or the set of prefects, etc. Yeah, no, I absolutely did. And I'm fascinated again by your initial comments around this because one of the things you've touched on as part of that is that 
where things don't become part of the culture, which is one of the themes that we've taken up, I think, throughout these podcasts, then they wither and die. And it feeds into that thing, again, that I've been talking about a lot, about always painting on a wet wall, that things don't become absorbed in the culture. And you use the term about student involvement and student engagement as a Cinderella and I think that's a classic example that, you know, it's played around with sometimes, it's taken up because somebody is an enthusiasm, but it's not built into the culture often. And as a result, it just kind of withers and dies and the impact of that's lost. And I was also impressed by what the Essex heads had to say. And I just wondered whether you thought that the kind of approaches they'd taken might get closer to building that yeah, into the culture. Yeah, I did think that. Um, we never pushed them, and we will, of course, because we're, we're going to return to it. And I want to come back to that uh, before we're finished about, well, where do we go from here? But they, they, although they mention loads of interesting things, we never pushed them on on their staffing structure, who led on what, whether they retained it through job descriptions, which is what you're really talking about. What they did do, uh, it seemed to me, was give a range, a range of interesting possibilities, ranging from that lovely guy from Braintree, who it seemed to me was involving the youngsters in kind of a quasi-judicial function or sponsoring function for departments. So departments in that secondary school were putting forward propositions for how a sum of money, I think in that case 10,000 quid, they were going to, how they would like to use that money to make a big thing of the development of a faculty or a department. And the youngsters were involved in making a decision about or some of the youngsters were involved. And I thought beneath the surface of that was the implied involvement of students in all sorts of other areas of school life, which must take some really huge organisational structure. And I thought it was way beyond tokenism. It was getting the youngsters involved in that. Then I don't know if you remember, there was another guy. Do you remember when I asked them, uh, hey, do any of you, uh, is there anybody here who doesn't set the children? And there was one person who had put up his hand and said, no, I don't set. And you can remember, I'm sure, that I was quite astonished that there was a, there was one person who didn't set, which 20, 30 years ago wouldn't have been the case. There would have been quite a few who didn't set. But nowadays, especially with the return of our debate about, I mean, shall we talk about grammar schools? But with the debate about grammar schools, uh, people take for granted that setting is an activity. Now, that one person who didn't set, I thought was really interesting because he was one of the five and he was coming up at the other extreme, which was, well, you don't get youngsters to be autonomous, engaged learners unless they're autonomous and engaged in the lessons. And therefore, he was shifting bravely, I thought, 
from a teacher dominated, a teacher kind of filling the youngsters' minds to a set of youngsters who were who were empowered to be learners. And I'm going to, I mean, I really do want to visit that school to see how the reality of it is involved. But in a way, what you and I have discussed, haven't we, um, this uh, remarkable way in which uh, red dot marking, uh, where youngsters are told by the teacher, there's a mistake somewhere here, and so they're engaged necessarily in feedback. And so much of feedback in schools, you don't know whether the kids are actually listening. But in that red dot marking where a teacher kind of puts an idea, I think we've covered it before, puts an idea down that in the margin saying, well, you could extend your use of descriptive words, adjectives or adverbs or whatever it may be. Or you put right your kind of punctuation at this point. But don't specify and the kids got to think through and can phone a friend, talk to a friend, and I can't with it. So my my thought that I was picking up that whether it was from big decisions about sums of money or learning in the classroom there was a range of optimum student involvement down to tokenist student involvement that was possible to play around with in terms of examining the different processes of school improvement. And as you know, I, I'm I'm off to uh, Liverpool over the next 12 months and I'm trying to pick up ideas from from them of the things they do well so I can write write about the things that they do well in terms of school improvement. But I thought on on passel, as it were, I'd be trying to pick up on ideas of uh, successful student involvement. And my commitment is a year from now, picking up with ideas from Essex, we might write something up of, well, how do you make sure that you are optimising the possibility of student involvement in the journey of children being starting as dependent learners, becoming independent learners, and the more involved they become, they become interdependent learners. But I don't know what you think about Well, I think there's so many things that fall in behind that. Um, and the first big thing that falls in behind that is, I think, what we've seen recently. Um, and I know that you've warned us against these being come, becoming time-locked as podcasts. But I think what we've seen recently is, is a tendency for people to, to choose people to govern them in the case of Donald Trump, for example, whom they see as being no more intelligent, no more intellectual, no more anything than themselves, but just more likely to drive change. We've seen Nigel Farage, for example, becoming some kind of political folk hero. And what we're seeing, in a sense, around that is an abdication from people for taking responsibility for their own destiny and passing on to others and settling for cocking a snoot somehow at the establishment. And... It seems to me that that whole conversation that we're having around the involvement of youngsters in 
managing, if you like, the community of the school at all levels, from the level of pedagogy right through to that dispersal of funding, seems to me a really powerful way of getting towards that concept that we have in Scotland of educating people to be responsible citizens and to be engaged in their own lives and communities and decisions around that. Um, and I think that's that's a really worthwhile endeavour. That's an interesting thing because uh, interesting point you're making because are you saying that it is less likely that you could have uh if i said and this is terrible because people are going to judge us but does if if my view is that that the phenomenon of nigel farage and donald trump if one puts them together and they are different but is a kind of lowest common denominator um, approach to politics, and if you if you if you think that's the case, are you saying if we continue to treat youngsters as vessels to fill and test on a narrow range of skills, then we're never going to get to the point where the highest common denominator of students who really live out thinking for themselves and acting for others, which is surely the basis of civilised societies, is going to remain elusive. Are you saying that? I'm saying it's more likely to remain elusive if we don't take those opportunities. And my feeling is that at school level, both in terms of raising that commitment to engagement and raising that commitment to involvement and giving young people that sense of control which allows them to engage meaningfully, I think is hugely powerful. Yeah. Um, one of the things you and I have talked about uh, is, is whether... Uh, give a simple example. Would you go so far? I would but would you, and to what extent would you do it, of involving students in the choice of staff? If you move on, if you say student involvement is a Cinderella, then I won't say the big sister, but definitely the prince is getting staff development right. And I think that's much neglected as well. You know, Ofsted don't talk about it. Uh, but would you say that one of the key ingredients of successful staff development overlaps with student involvement? Because my experience is that when you involve students in choice of staff, they invariably get it right. Uh, one of the questions I used to use in interviews for heads was the best teachers, the best head teachers, um, like young people and are interested in young people. How yeah. would you make that evident in your practice? Yeah. But involving young people in the selection got us to that point almost instantly, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that uh, we're now into the territory of, of staff appointments, which chance would be a fine thing. Many people in England would now be saying, especially around London and the southeast. I mean, I live on the edge of Oxford and... House prices there are rivalling those that are that I'm aware are a hindrance in London. Um, so retain re attracting staff in the first place is incredibly important, and then retaining them is 
is the magic ingredient. I mean, just to give you a flavour of that, I live, I live right on the edge of Oxford, and it's right on the edge of a very large, challenging estate, Wood Farm. And the head there is a fantastic guy. He's been there about 10 years. Very understated, quiet person. Motivates staff amazingly. And to give you a flavour, I mean, I go there to go to the... I go past the school to go to the shops. And if it's six o'clock in the evening, whereas I would have looked before he ever went there at a at a school that had closed and everybody had gone off, which is not uncommon, by six mm-hmm. o'clock, a primary school. Uh, now you will see joking teachers walking out, really exhausted but delighted to be in the school. Uh, and it seems to me that he's found the secret of retaining staff. Mm. And I think part of that is staff development. And I think it's hugely neglected. What, 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 what's your insight into that from a Scottish perspective. Yeah, I mean, first thing I would say is that what you're giving with that example is a brilliant case study in a school that's become a community. And what you're seeing reflected in that is people wanting to be part of that, enjoying being part of that and reflecting that enjoyment in their demeanour and their attitude to their work. And a school can be a community unless it's a community of both learners and educators, in my view. And I think that ties the thing together really nicely between the two elements. But in terms of staff development, you've used the the phrase time and time again that what teachers need is respect, respect, respect. And you've repeated it often in that regard. And I don't know how you demonstrate that respect without attempting to engage with their professionalism and enhance that professionalism. I think you do. And I think it's to do with... I mean, the the heart of successful staff development seems to me to lie with the the leader of the group, whether it be the faculty or whether it be the head of the school. I mean, they really need to be interested in, in the hunt, not the not the catching. In other words, the speculation about what it means to be successful. Who's got evidence of this? So I think the leader has to has to kind of set an example of being a good questioner, a good learner, uh, never certain that they've found the right answer, but quite confident that collectively we're on the right track and encouraging the pursuit of of some subtleties that will make a difference. I mean, I know that's terribly vague, but unless that climate or that culture exists, I don't think you're going to get staff who who are refreshing their intellectual curiosity and are collecting the energy that is so necessary in order to have a successful school. So in addition to respect, I think there's a lot to be said in getting staff development right for, well, who's got the responsibility? And of course, we've got, uh, you've talked about these things and so have I, and I've got a baker's dozen of simple ideas around, well, if you did all these things every now and again, you'd have a really strong staff development thing and since a practice. 
And I've, I've been wondering whether one of the weaknesses of the English schooling system, I'm not saying Scotland, you come in on that, but is that we haven't, we haven't developed a kind of charter mark that lists activities that the school, say 10 key activities, eight of which a school would need to do to be able to claim it has a charter mark, and then perhaps entitlements that a teacher might have. Mm-hmm. And for my money, if we could get, I know that Mrs May is terribly keen south of the border in the involvement of universities, if we could get universities accrediting staff development charter marks of that sort, A, schools would want to do it. B, if they did it, they would create an environment that was better for the for the uh, for, for for prospective staff, and it would it would perhaps mean that wherever you were, particularly in a secondary school, you belong to the faculty of mm. a local university, so you could extend your subject knowledge as well as your pedagogical knowledge. So I think where we want to go now with this is to use what you've said as a springboard into the next episode to give people more detail and also to try and bring together a number of the themes that we've developed through the booklet which began this series. But we also, I think, want to broaden it out into a wider conversation. We'll be doing that on Twitter using the hashtag HeyZCC. And I think you've already volunteered, Tim, that you're happy to make your email address available, which is Tim Brighouse, all lowercase, at yahoo.co.uk. And um, I think if people want to get access to the resources and want to engage in the conversation, we'll begin that process after the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Thank you for downloading this Hayes Education podcast. To request a copy of the 10 Challenges to Becoming a Truly Creative School booklet and to find out more about the services we offer, you can visit our website, which is hayes.co.uk forward slash education. You can speak to your local office regarding forthcoming Leadership Breakfast seminars. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Hayes Education UK.